Let's turn together to Hebrews chapter number one this morning. Hebrews chapter number one. And we have been working our way very methodically and admittedly very slowly through these introductory verses of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter one, looking at verse number five primarily today, although we will touch on verse six. And we'll consider the subject again of the dignity of Christ, His Sonship, and His humiliation. The dignity of Christ, His Sonship, and His humiliation. We repeatedly throughout Scripture see the evidence of Jesus Christ appearing in our nature. Of course, we know that Christ came to lay down his life. He came to lay down his life and he came in the character as a servant of the Father. As a servant of the Father, he came to accomplish the salvation of the very children that were given to him by the Father. Jesus Christ is referred to in Scripture as being the seed of the woman. He's referred to as being the head of of the elect of God, and he has identified himself with us. By that identifier, he is indicating that he would raise them to life and ultimately to eternal glory. Jesus Christ, in that human nature, endures the curse by going to the cross. By his enduring the suffering of the cross, uh, we, in fact, are the recipients of a great blessing. That blessing that is even realized today is the union with Christ that is very, very real and very, very palpable. Uh, You know today if you are in union with Christ. Uh, You know that it is not uh, an offense to God to declare yourself to be a son of God if you are in fact in Christ Jesus today. Now that would be an arrogant, bold move to declare ourselves the son of God if we truly were not the son of God. Uh, it would be a, a, a matter of a heresy if we were to claim a title for ourselves that we had no right to claim. But we are told we can call ourselves the Son of God because of what Christ has done. Jesus Christ, of course, subjected himself to what's referred to as his passion, what's referred to as his suffering, and ultimately had to experience death that we might have eternal life. It was extremely easy for you and I to simply look at what Christ has done and realize that we receive all of these things, but we don't receive the same sorrow, we don't experience the same shame, and we certainly do not experience the same grief in which the Lord Jesus Christ experienced in our place. But we also have the promise today that we also do not receive the full pain and sting of death. Uh, If you were to ask people all around the world, what is man's greatest fear? Most people, without hesitation, will say they're afraid of death. And most people are not as afraid of the after death as they are the process of death or how the death is going to take place. But I would tell you that the most fearful thing of death is not how. The most fearful thing of death is what happens after. Uh, We're all humanly afraid of death, but Jesus never focused on The how, he focused on what was the after. 
Christ cheerfully, voluntarily goes to the cross. He submits himself knowing that the Father's commandment was a commandment and a promise to life everlasting. He was not only promising to save his son, he was promising to save a multitude which cannot be numbered. You and I have no idea today how many people are numbered with those in Christ. I know in this day and age, it's really hard today to look around and say, are there any other believers anywhere? Is there anybody else who's standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I would tell you today, even if you just simply look around in this room today, take heart and be encouraged that you are not standing alone in this present evil world. And if you have another individual standing with you, you in fact are a blessed individual today because we have others who are standing for the truth. We know that John 5.26 teaches us that the Father gave to the Son because He had life in Himself. He gave Christ life in Himself and gave Him the authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of God and He's the Son of Man. The reason God gave judgment, God the Father gave judgment to Christ was that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. What we're doing today and what we do every time we think upon our salvation is we honor Christ, but we also honor the Father. You cannot honor the Father without honoring Christ, and you cannot honor Christ without honoring the Father. So as we continue to expound this particular text, the theme that, that radiates through from verse 5 all the way down through verse 14 is this concept of the dignity of Christ or His worthiness. Why is He worthy for our adoration? Why is He worthy of our worship? Now last week we began dealing with this principal concept of His sonship and specifically how God the Father declared Him to be this Son. But today we also look briefly at this second evidence of the dignity or the worthiness of Christ, which is his humiliation. When we talk about humiliation, it often comes with a very negative thought. To be humiliated in a human sense is to be made a spectacle of. Um, uh, we would never want to humiliate a person uh, intentionally. Uh, we would never want to humiliate someone's character or run, run them down publicly so that uh, they were brought to a place of, look, we, we've made a spectacle of them. But do we realize this morning that the very death of Christ and his very sufferings and his passions and, and what he was doing when he went to the cross, to the world it was a shameful spectacle to be humiliated, but yet Christ is doing that voluntarily. And he's doing that for his own. He's doing that in order that he might bring unto himself all that the Father had given him. This is that testimony that we so grandly speak of, that the sonship of Christ, his sonship that God the Father declared, began not when Jesus Christ took on that robe of human flesh, but we begin to see it in the Old Testament. We see the pictures of Christ through the Old Testament types, through the pictures. The first thought I want us to consider again today as we think about the sonship is I want us to think about this thought that the sonship of Christ is declared in the Old Testament types. Uh, you might say, what are types? Notice with me verse 5. It says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. 
And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, if we do not study the entirety of the Bible, we may look at this statement, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And we might think this is the first time that God, as the writer of Scripture, makes this statement. However, this is a reference primarily to a man by the name of Solomon. If you'll hold your place here in Hebrews chapter 1, go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And we'll start reading actually back at verse number 12. And I want you to see this, think about this picture of he shall be to me a son. Now primarily 2 Samuel 7 is dealing with the temple that's going to be for the ark. There's a message that God is, is being delivered to David. But then there is this statement that is made particularly about Solomon, which is our first view into these Old Testament types. Verse 12, it says, And when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall be, build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all of these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight. O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant." For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Now, an Old Testament type or a picture was never meant to be a perfect view of what was to come. We know that Solomon was a fallible man. We know that David was fallible. They were both sinners. But both of these men, Solomon and David, are types that prefigure Jesus Christ. Now, we notice one thing, how we see that the type could never be an absolute perfect picture just by what is said in verse 14 of what we just read. I will be his father and he shall be my son. We would all agree right there. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews was quoting. But here's what cannot be said of Christ. If he commit iniquity. Now, we know that Jesus Christ is incapable of committing iniquity. He's incapable of being a sinner. So we know that in a type, it does not mean that it is a perfect illustration or representation of that individual it is pointing to. But if you study scripture, you know that Solomon and David were not just Bible characters. Uh, oftentimes, in our lack of desire to truly study to show ourselves approved, uh, we study the Bible from a picture and just say, here's some Old Testament pick people we should model our lives after. David was not just a character. 
Solomon's not just a character. Moses is not just a character. Joseph was not just a character. These were all men who in some way, shape, or form were types who prefigured who Christ would be. So until we understand that, we're always going to be in this case of saying, who are these Old Testament people? And it leads us to focus on the things that these Old Testament people did. Uh, For example, when I say David, we often say David and Goliath. And we assume that the story of David and Goliath is about David striking down the giant. And we've heard the watered-down, shallow preaching of how to slay the giants in your life, which is just ridiculous preaching. That's not the Word of God. That's not what that was about. And I've heard men go to so far and say, what are the five giants in your life? There's the five stones. That's not what David is about. That's not what he was ever intended to be about. These are remarkable types of Christ. We learn even, as we'll, we'll look in Hebrews, as we get further, that the writer of Hebrews begins to describe someone greater than Solomon. And he indicates that that someone is already here. Now, in what we read, we see that God made a promise to Abraham, or to uh, Solomon, rather, to establish his kingdom forever. The Lord Jesus is often frequently described in Scripture both as David and the son of David. One of the great statements made about David is that David was a man after what? After God's own heart. What that means is that David had a zeal for the worship of God. Uh, But that full zealousness was never found in David. The full zealousness for the true worship of God was fully accomplished in Christ. David was never brought to a place where he was a perfect worshiper of God. But yet, we see this perfect, full accomplishment in Christ. Christ always did those things which pleased his Father. Rhetorically, did David always do what pleased the Father? No. Did Solomon always do what pleased the Father? No. Did David? Did Joseph? Did Abraham? Did Moses? No. Matter of fact, these men, all of their past is stained with a pretty notable sin. Every one of them, we could point to at least one sin in their life where they were guilty of not being a perfect individual. But they were types. They're remarkable types. Now, not every character in the Bible is a type of Christ. And it's important that when you study the Word of God that you study from the place where you don't start making people types who aren't types. And you start making more about someone that the Scripture doesn't. You know how we determine the types? Because the Bible often very clearly will identify who those people were. Or, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we see a quote in the New Testament that fully lines up with a quote in the Old Testament. That's how we begin to see, okay, when he said this to Solomon, he was talking about prefiguring who Christ would be. Of course, God the Father says to the Son, he will be my son. So we repeatedly throughout scripture find these aspects about who God is. But we also see that not only in these Old Testament types, just in their character, but we also see secondly that the sonship of Christ is fulfilled or the Old Testament types are fulfilled in Christ's humiliation. The suffering that Christ goes through also prefigures 
or, or fulfills rather, what was prefigured in the Old Testament. It's what we refer to as a double type. Again, I'm not trying to get uh, too much in the weeds today, but it's how Christ is being presented to our view. How did Jesus Christ come to this earth? As a ruling king or as a servant? He came as a servant. He did not come to establish his kingdom immediately. The Jews, that's what they were expecting. When Jesus comes onto the scene, their greatest uh, offense towards him was that he, if this was our Messiah... He would be ruling us now. They looked at Jesus as a political uh, individual who's coming to overthrow the Roman government. People today are looking for a deliverance in our world the very same way. We're looking for someone to overrule the government. That's not what, the, what Jesus Christ is about. Our role is not to overthrow governments and overthrow kingdoms. We are simply understanding that Jesus Christ came in the form of a servant. And as a servant, he was engaged in servant work as the son of God. He's committed to his father. Folks, I want us to get this concept. Jesus Christ is not as committed to you as he is committed to the father. Oftentimes we look at Jesus Christ and we say, what a commitment Jesus has to me. What Christ did was all things to please his Father. He's committed to the Father. If we make this about us, that he's doing all these things because he's committed to us, no, he's doing it because he's committed to the Father. And as a son, he always obeys the Father. Like all of us did as children, we all obeyed our earthly fathers always, right? See, nobody admits that. Because we know we can't. None of the characters in the Old Testament could say that. None of the New Testament characters, even the Apostle Paul could not say, you know what, I always obeyed my parents. But Jesus Christ was fully obedient in all things, never sinning. You realize there's, there's a, again, a, there, are new, there are such new false doctrines that are arriving on our scene so fast you can't keep up anymore. There's another new one now that's out that's saying that, that actually Jesus Christ had to have been a sinner because that's why he died. They're actually teaching that he actually had some sin in him at one point, that he was actually a sinner. You realize that undoes, that, that, that undoes the entire scripture. It undoes his entire character. And you say, what, what kind of places has this happened? These must be like really weird off-the-wall churches. You'll be shocked. These are your common everyday churches where it's begun to get into the church where it's, look, maybe Jesus was, he's just a little bit of a sinner. No, he could do no sin. There was no iniquity found in him. So he was committed to the work by his father. What did the work require of him as a servant? He would be a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 tells us he would be acquainted with griefs. Scripture goes on to say he would be called a stranger, a pilgrim. He would have no place to lay his head. And he would finally, at the appointed hour, the appointed time, he would be made a curse. Listen to the wording. He would be made a curse by hanging on the tree. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now the world looks at him and says, there's a man that didn't put up a fight. There's a man that just went to the cross. If, if that's your God, he, he was humiliated. Folks, if, if your hero... Hopefully you don't have a worldly hero in the same sense you hold the 
view of God. If your hero was taken without any resistance at all, you would almost say, well, you didn't even put up a fight. You, you, you didn't even resist. And yet, his humiliation was part of the declaring of his sonship because he was being obedient to the father. See, a son always obeys the father. Humanly speaking, it can't be done, but Christ always obeyed his father. Always. Even in his suffering, even in his humiliation. We see his humiliation as something to behold. We see he who conquered death, hell, and the grave, and Satan. We look at the cross and we see Satan being defeated. That's why, folks, you should not live in this world as if you have no power over the devil because he's already been defeated at the cross. And yet the devil weaves his way into our lives, combined with our own doubts and fears, and we believe sometimes that which is false more than believe what's already been accomplished. If I'm truly in Christ today, I do not have anything to fear even death. Now, I say this all the time, and I'm not trying to be funny. Do I want to die today? Not necessarily. Do I want to go home to my family in a little bit? Absolutely, I do. Am I afraid of what happens after this life to me? Not one iota am I afraid. I know my Redeemer lives. And I know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And as quick as my breath and my life leaves my body, I know 100% certainty that's where I'll be. And I would never want you to feel sorry for what happened to me. But I only have that hope because my Savior, my Lord, was willing to endure the humiliation that I should have endured. I deserve hell. I deserve to be damned and not have any benefit because I am a wretched sinner. And yet Jesus Christ says, you have been accepted with the Father. I, the Son, have acceptance with the Father. You have acceptance with my Father because of my righteousness, which has been imputed into you. You have access because of what I've done. Not because of what I prayed, not because of my church membership, not because of my baptism. I am a son of God because of Jesus Christ. We don't see that as humiliation in the sense of, wow, what a weak Savior. We see this as a conqueror. Jesus Christ, who's been granted all authority, all power in heaven, his sufferings were his glory. He's Typified by David, who we know throughout Scripture, if you study David's life, that man suffered a lot of affliction. One of his greatest afflictions was his own, came from his own son by the name of Absalom. Absalom, his own son, wanted his own father dead. Imagine a father today being pursued by his own son, wanting him dead. He wants his father's kingdom. There is no push and pull and tension between God the Father and God the Son. These false doctrines that are permeating churches are almost teaching this, this false reality that there's some time in history is a tension between what God the Father wants and what God the Son wants. 
there's never been a tension. It's always been Jesus Christ fully obedient to the Father. We also see typified in Solomon. Do you realize that of all the rules and reigns, Solomon's reign was marked mostly by a glorious, peaceful reign. There was not as much turmoil in Solomon's reign as there was his father David's. It seems as if someone always wanted David's kingdom. Remember the tension between David and Saul. You remember all the stories of Saul trying to kill David. The times when David had opportunity to kill Saul. One of the greatest examples of that is when David's in that cave and Saul comes in and he's close enough to him that he clips a piece of his garment off. Just to indicate, I could have killed you. You didn't even know I was there. David didn't take that action, but Solomon is a remarkable type of Christ because as Isaiah chapter 9 teaches us, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and his kingdom, there is coming a kingdom that has no end. And that kingdom is already in place. We make the mistake often of saying, I can't wait until Jesus Christ is reigning. I want you to know this morning, Jesus Christ is already reigning. There are things happening in this world that we may not fully understand, but don't make the mistake of saying, you know, God's just got his hand off of the world right now. He's letting all these things happen. These are all happening according to his purposes and his plan, even when bad things happen. We've all heard it. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Show me a good person. Show me one. You say, I don't like that preaching. That's offensive. That's scriptural. You're not good. Jesus, even with the rich young ruler, said, why do you call me good? He didn't even understand what good really meant. Good is not just a little bit above average. In order for us to be good, we have to be acceptable to God in our person which means my righteousness has to be acceptable to God. And nobody here can say my righteousness or my works is good enough to gain me the title of son. That only comes through Christ. And we got that freely. He promised to Solomon, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, besides David and besides Solomon, we have two real accounts Two passages of Scripture that I'm going to encourage you to study on your own because we, these are sermons in and of themselves. It's Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 14. These are two passages that refer to the Day of Atonement. And in Leviticus 16, what we have first is we have the account on the great Day of Atonement, two goats. Anybody familiar with Leviticus 16 and the two, gates, the two goats? You have the one that's called a scapegoat. Well, in those two goats, one of the two, all of the sins of Israel is placed upon that one goat. And upon that goat, the sins of all Israel placed. What happens to that goat? That goat is slain and killed. The second goat is set free. And it pictures Jesus Christ dying for the sins of his people and being raised 
and him being raised for their justification. His very death, his very resurrection is a prefiguring picture of what Jesus Christ was going to do for his people. It's, just not, it's not just a story about two goats and one dies and one goes free. It was prefiguring what Christ was going to do. In Leviticus 14, we have reference to the cleansing of a leper. And instead of two goats, there's two birds. One of the birds is killed. The other bird, after being dipped in blood, is set free. Is that just a story about two birds? One dies and one goes free? It represents the great shepherd of the sheep who brings again from the dead. How were they brought from the dead? Through the blood of Christ, through the everlasting covenant. Now, Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 14 are passages you need to take some time to study through them. But when you read them, you begin to see that there's something that is common between them both. It's blood. I know we don't like to talk about it. The world likes to watch things with blood. Uh, They like to watch movies that depict blood being shed and people being killed. And we've gotten so hardened to this. Uh, we sadly, we see it. We don't, we don't even think about how, how there's just a lack of respect for human life. And yet these animals that were being slain were not just animals. They all had to meet certain specifications. These animals had to be without blemish, without spot. They were prefiguring what Christ would be. To be without spot, without blemish means to be without sin. Jesus Christ had to shed his blood. He shed his blood for his people. What about Moses? When we think about Christ's humiliation, what was was Moses' role as a type? Well, he's referred to in Scripture as the mediator of the Old Covenant. As a mediator, he was picturing the mediator, which is who? Jesus Christ. Christ acts in the role of mediator today. He's not going to a cross again. He's not coming again to bleed and to die. He's at the right hand of the Father, and He is the mediator of His people. We, he intercedes on our behalf. But you understand, oftentimes, Moses would try to intercede on behalf of Israel. And when the people would sin, Moses would try to intercede. Remember when the people made the golden calf. He takes the tables and he breaks the stone tablets. And he tells them, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up into the Lord peradventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. Exodus 32 30. Moses was acting as a mediator. He was seeing the sins of the people, and he says, I'm going to go before the Lord for you. He would go to the Lord and he would say, These people have sinned a great sin against you. They've made gods out of gold. And yet Moses would say to God, Exodus 32, 31 and 32, Yet now if thou wilt forget, forgive their sin. Now listen to what he says. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. You realize what Moses was saying? Forgive them, and if, if need be, blot my name out of the book of life. 
Paul did a similar thing in the book of Galatians when he said, if, if I come preaching another gospel, count me as accursed. Count me, blot me out, take me out of the, the Lamb's book of life. Take, me, give, take away my everlasting life. What was Moses doing as a mediator? He was offering his life to atone for the sin of Israel. Jesus Christ was the atoning life that was given for the sin of Israel and the sin of all of his people. We also know that God spoke to Moses. Numbers 12.8 tells us that he spoke to Moses mouth to mouth and not in dark speeches. So we understand that there's reason to suppose that Moses communicated to Israel in some type of parables what he had plainly heard. But what's often said about Israel? They were stiff-necked people. They were people who refused to hear. They would not have room for the Son of God. They had no room for the Messiah. They had no room for God. Ultimately, what was Israel's stumbling block? If you believe that the Old Testament pre prefigures and pictures Jesus Christ, then it is accurately biblically to say that the stumbling block to the Israelites was Jesus Christ. Yet Jesus Christ is never mentioned in the Old Testament, but he's prefigured in almost every picture that we see. The tabernacle, the temple, every one of those vessels points to some aspect of who Jesus Christ is. So for the person who says today, the Old Testament's about the old God and the New Testament about the new God, and we're just a New Testament church, we don't have anything to do with the Old Testament, you can't understand the new if you don't understand the old. Because you have no idea what anything means. You would not be able to even look at Hebrews 1.5 today and say, what's this word about I will be to him a father and he'll be to me a son? That would make no sense if we did not have the Old Testament to see it. You wouldn't even know who he was talking about. And yet, this doctrine of Christ becomes a stumbling block. Remember, Israel was the, given the first oracles of God. They were given the instructions. They had the prophets. They saw His mighty works. They heard Him to be declared who He was. What happened when Jesus Christ actually came? They had additional instructions. They, seen his, they saw His works. A voice from heaven says, this is my son. And what's the next phrase? Hear him. I'm asking you today, hear the son. Don't look at his cross as something humiliating and a spectacle or a scandalous thing. That is the beauty of his sonship and the beauty of his dignity is in the fact of his passion and his sufferings. What crime was Jesus Christ convicted of? Being a blasphemer. His crime was that he counted himself equal with God. Was Jesus lying? Nope. Because he is God. But that's what they got him on. Now you might say, I wish they wouldn't have got him. Do you really know what you're saying? First of all, they didn't get him. He gave himself up. If they could have got him, they had more than ample opportunity to get him numerous times before that. His time had not yet come. They got him because he said, the Father's time is now. This is the time. My time of departure is coming near. 
Now, we don't know exactly everything that Moses knew about Christ. He doesn't mention him by name. But as a mediator, Moses was willing to die for the people, even though, do you know, his death would not have atoned for the sins of the people. When did Israel finally go into the promised land? After Moses died. And after Moses died, Moses is replaced by a man named Joshua. And the very two first verses of the book of Joshua, here's what it says. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Moses and Joshua were both a type of Christ. The first time I ever heard about heard Joshua preached was that this was about one pastor replacing another pastor at a church. That was the context I was given. This is what this shows us. That when one preacher dies or moves on, don't tarry in the past. Joshua now is your pastor. Joshua now is your elder. No, there was a passing on of this prefiguring of even showing who Jesus Christ is. So now you approach the book of Joshua, and now Joshua is not just a bunch of stories about Joshua and as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Even in Joshua, we have Christ being prefigured. So what does this teach us as we bring this to a close today? What does this teach us about these types? We understand that all of these types pre figured this Christ who by his death paid the sins paid for the sins of his people the greatest declaration of the sonship of Christ is witnessed in his resurrection because when he raises from that grave that is the acceptance that God the Father has taken the sacrifice of the Son and all that are in Christ can now be called sons and daughters. There's a lot of people today that want to jump from his sonship into his exaltation. But do you realize that Christ could not be exalted had there not been a humiliation? There would not have been a humiliation had there not been the sonship. So all of these things that are, that are writing through Hebrews 1 from five, verse 5 all the way down to verse 14 are showing us exactly why the dignity of Christ is so very important. So next week, we're going to look at his exaltation, which is primarily there in verse number 6. But today we see his sonship by Christ being declared a son. And by his clear relationship to the Father, but even in his humiliations, in our Savior's sorrows and sufferings, we just as clearly see him identified as his son. As a result of this sonship, this is the reason that next week we look why God the Father himself exalts the son. And he's going to say something very interesting to the angels. He's going to tell the angels, and we'll just read this and we'll be done. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God 
worship him. That's exaltation. As a result of my son, his sonship, his humiliation, let all the angels of God worship him. We're going to conclude this morning by singing the hymn on 201. 201, if you'll find your hymns of grace. A short hymn, but a great reminder, there is a Redeemer.